guys on? Uh, this is No Way Jose. You can find me on No Way Jose YouTube channel, all the major auto podcasters, and Odyssey as well. Today, my guest is Aaron of Timeline Earth. Uh, if you're watching the 22nd, this is a live stream uh, and it's public. Uh, if not, you'll be seeing this uh, roughly a week or so, whatever I drop it, dude, whatever works out for my schedule. If you want to have access to it in the meantime, you got to be a patron at patreon.com. Just no way, Jose 2020. The lowest level is two bucks, the highest level is 20, and those are my sponsors. Read them off every episode. I have CD McRae of the Whiskey and Pea podcast. Jeremy, who has an Etsy store at etsy.com slash shop slash raising liberty. Uh, he has a lot of like liberty type merch if that's something you're interested in. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Jeremy Rhymes. And then Mikel Thorup of the Expat Money Show. If you're trying to get the hell out of the country and you've got some uh, got some money to do it with, he's, he's your guy. He's got a show and he's also got, he does it as a business. So go hit him up. Uh, today we're, you know, you, you heard me, I have a uh, Aaron. So and if you see the title, you know, what's up. This is, uh, this is the last installment, or at least it should be of the Agris class theory live reading. I thought the last one might be the last one, but, uh, you know, I'm kind of being a little bit completionist here and we're kind of doing the, uh, the appendix part, which is like a little essay of, uh, Conkins, I guess, uh, something they found from his notes or something like that. Um, yeah, uh, make sure you go check out Top Lobster, toplobster.com. Use Jose at checkout for 10% off. If you want to get some of my merch or many other shows, merches, merches, I don't think that's right. Uh, and then, um, yeah, he also has some of his other stuff that's not like show related stuff. He has a lot of good stuff. So definitely go check that out with that. Let's go ahead and get Aaron in here. Hey, what's up, Aaron? How's it going, man? Not much. Yeah. As you guys can see, uh, this guy has a haircut. Uh, it's very, 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 it's very odd. I'm used to you having very a, a nice, nice hair, but I, I understand it. Uh, you know, it's summer. Yeah. It's, well, I guess I don't know. You're, you're, where are you at? I mean, you obviously don't have to give me your address. I'm in, but, I'm in New England. It's, it's starting uh, to cool down a little bit. It's uh, still muggy and gross out. It's mostly just shitty. Uh, but um, every like three or four haircuts, I'll just be like, you know what? Give me a number five. I'm done. Like, just reset. Hit the reset button. Yeah, I mean, when you have nice hair like I do, and then what you used to, it is like it, it's a it's a whole task. It is. You know? I mean, yeah. not not that it's even really that hard. I don't know how much upkeep you had to do and like combing it and brushing it or whatever the hell. It's still very low maintenance compared to like women, but it's still like, oh what the God. fuck am I doing? My hair as a man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I used to give way more of a shit. Like even a couple of years ago, like I would mm. give way more of a shit, but like after. You know, after the whole COVID thing, I think a lot of people are just like, eh, it is what yeah. it is. Like, I, mean, I don't think I've used gel in probably a year and a half, two years. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, it's going to be a real special occasion now. Yeah. I mean, once you got the pussy unlocked, it's going to get really yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah. That too, yeah. I mean, now that I got to like, the only reason, I don't know, I don't really care like in real life, but I guess kind of like looking nice, but also I guess to some extent, I'm like, eh, it's, I guess it's probably good to look good having a show. I don't know. That's yeah. how I justify it. I don't know. I'll probably end up shaving again at some point. Yeah, like I'll, again. I'll put gel in my hair or or like trim my beard or whatever. It, only it, as as like a gift to my fiance if we're going out, <laughs> so that I don't look like a complete piece of shit like next yeah. to her. Yeah. No. <laughs> but other than that, like. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. Who gives a shit? Yeah. I mean, what, what are you gonna do? Stop sleeping with me? Um. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so we are continuing on with Agra's class theory. I guess let's go ahead and knock it out. We were talking a little bit before about kind of uh, how this is. It, it seems to me, I don't know 100%, uh, you know, uh, if this is true or not, but it seems to me from skimming through it that this is what Wally Conger, the one who made uh, Agra's class theory, 
use to pull from to get some of the excerpts of uh, what Konkin is saying. Because if you guys notice listening throughout this is I would say, you know, Konkin said or whatever, and that would be Konkin's words. Probably well over half of this was Konger, Wally Konger's words, uh, where he was kind of piecing together uh, something uh, made out of, you know, uh, kind of Frankenstein Konkin's work a little bit, I guess you could say. Uh, oh yeah, Anna in the chat just said hat and glasses is my vote. I, that's a thing. I, I one one day I've had multiple women. One stream was very last minute. I just I just I, my hair wasn't done, so I just threw in a hat and I did. I, I wear contacts, so I just kept my glasses on. And I don't know why multiple women are like, "You look good." I'm like, my wife would be like, "You look like shit." So like, I, 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 yeah. <laughs> who are you gonna believe? <laughs> yeah, I know. I right. I mean, I just stop giving a shit and just fucking <laughs> shave my hair. Wear a hat and just never put in my contacts. Like who? Cares? My approach is the audience is the party with the least credibility. Yeah. <laughs> Followed very closely by my fiance because she's a woman. Yeah, yeah I mean they, these people in the chat are not sleeping with me. So. But yeah. Uh, well, all right. Let's go ahead and get into it. This is a qui bono introduction to libertarian class theory. Which I looked up what libertarian class theory is. I'm assu- I don't know if this was some sort of intro he did for someone else's book or or a book he was working on. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I mean, if I was more of a professional, I probably would know. Uh, but uh, you know, or, or maybe that's what he originally was going to title this because I'm assuming when Conger put this together that this was something that maybe Conger was working on his own. Uh, then uh, Conger just kind of finished it for him. Yeah, um, if he's anything like Rothbard, he had like just a pile of fucking papers, half typed, half handwritten, maybe on a bar napkin, and like somebody after him had to come in and fucking piece it together. That's yeah. probably what this Conger guy did. Yeah, and you guys will see as you listen to this that a lot of these are clearly, uh, or maybe if you paid attention, that uh, some of the stuff is clearly just straight up the stuff that was in the previous passages. This is like a little mini essay, but like a nine page essay essentially. Uh, but all right, without any more ado, let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, libertarianism has been denounced by William F. Buckley as extreme a priorism in reference to Murray and Rothbard in notes towards an empirical definition of conservatism. Indeed, libertarians can willingly concede the substance of the charge, if not the pejorative implication of heresy. Uh, it is kind of funny that, uh, that Buckley would use that. I, a lot of people will you know, give us shit for that. It's funny because I, I am, a, in a sense, sort of an egoist, but at the same time, I still think it's a, it's good to have make your thinking consistent to be able to pass on a theory to someone else if it is like there is some sort of a priori or something uh, resembling a priori. Maybe not like a specifically a priori because even I would say it's subjective ultimately, but it's almost yeah. like you're chosen a priori, if you will. So you know, I that's my personal thought. I always thought it was kind of a silly attack on any really any fucking. Yeah, uh, thought process that like, oh, you have consistent principles, like, yeah, it's a, a good, a, it's, it's a, not supposed to work. <laughs> I mean, cons- I guess you know, getting into argumentation ethics, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, when especially when you're talking about like non scientific things like ideology, yeah, um, you know, it's perfectly fine to base it on on a priori foundation. Yeah, exactly. All right. The fundamental libertarian premise of non-aggression, of unbending opposition to all forms of initiatory violence and coercion to life and property, gives the libertarian analyzing his societal context and seeking out ways of dealing with it a logical razor of exceptional keenness. With it, he can slash away the fat of special pleading of various ideologies and retain the lean meat of genuine contributions to his understanding. 
Perhaps no other ideology, not even Marxism, has such a quality of overall integration and self-consistency as indicated by the startling rapidity that this new and complex theory is transmitted to new libertarians. Whoa, whoa, slow down. You're going to come too soon. Yeah. <laughs> stro- stro- stroking yourself off like that. <laughs> right? No, I, I am kind of curious because you've done more digging into like Marxism and stuff like that. So uh, I don't know if you agree with that. I mean, the little bit that I've delved into Marxism, it does. Maybe it's just because I, I haven't delved into completely, but it is kind of hard. It doesn't seem like a easy, consistent, whereas libertarian, once you start digging into it, it is it is pretty simple once you start understanding that the family yeah. principles kind of work out there. Yeah, uh, the lens the lens that you view the world through is through the non-aggression principle, much like the lens that Marxism views the world through is, you know, class dynamics um, or, you know, uh, exploitation theory or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it is, it is a lens, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. It's a useful lens to view things through. Just, you know, I, I, I used to be a pretty hardcore libertarian. Um, and it's still, it's still a useful ideology. Um, I'm not disparaging it, but, um, you know, it's, it's also useful to take a look through other lenses sometimes. And, you know, it's, it's, it has utility. Yeah, I agree. And that's kind of what we're doing here, because, I mean, the whole foundation of this whole book is the idea of that it's good to have a class theory. Uh, but I guess, I mean, maybe I miss. Oh, I think you froze for a sec. Oh, you're frozen. You there? Did I lose you for a yeah, second? Yeah. You're uh, frozen for a second. I don't know if that was either me or you. I don't, I'm not sure either way. Um, I don't know where I'm off, but. Uh, Anyway, the point I was getting, it sounds to me like, uh, if anything, in libertarianism, the point we're getting at in this book is that this should be like a second order thing. The uh, the class theory was obviously the non-aggression principle of the first order. Yeah, so, deriving a class theory from, from the lens of non-aggression. Yes, whereas I, I'm assuming, maybe I'm interpreting Marxism wrong, it sounds to be really that's the first order principle, essentially. Uh, I guess the first order, like- the... the- yeah. I guess they derive their class theory from uh, dialectic materialism. Like they start off with dialectic materialism and then analyze history and current events through there. Yeah. Which I and mean, so, the, similar with libertarianism with, you know, yeah. You know, time a libertarian like views history is through the lens of, you know, aggression, st- state aggression versus, you know. Yeah. I, I guess, I guess that kind of goes to uh, Conkin's original point. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I haven't delved de- deep enough to Marxism. The little bit I've learned about the dialectism or whatever the fuck, uh, it is like it, it, it is kind of just sounds like gobbledygook to me uh, a little bit. Uh, I mean, maybe I just haven't really wrapped my head around it. Whereas I feel like non-aggression is definitely a lot easier to wrap your head around. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah I don't know. doesn't mean it's right. It just means it's more simple. <laughs> um, all right. What follows is an excellent example of the use of Rothbard's razor in synthesizing an approach and understanding in an area almost devoid of libertarian sources. The author readily acknowledges that his only contribution to this field is one of collation and organization of scattered writings absorbed during his intellectual maturation, which is fortunate enough to coincide with that of libertarianism. Above all, acknowledgement is accorded to the libertarian forum, Dr. Murray and Rothbard and the scholars he inspired. I want to point out real quick, a lot of people give Conkin shit of being like a lefty or whatever the fuck. And I guess technically he did say his left libertarianism, but he he is always on Rothbard's dick. He's a big fan of Rothbard. He disagrees with him in some key areas. 
So he and he said many times in his writing that he he comes from a tradition of Rothbardism, essentially. So uh, I do think it's good to point that out frequently. Although I will say him calling a left libertarian, I think inevitably did uh, kind of drive the colloquial version of left libertarianism in and kind of made it a little bit faggy in a lot of ways. <laughs> I think he did that on purpose to kind of drive a wedge between him and, and the anarcho-capitalists. May have, yeah. It's kind of hard to tell. He's obviously not here to talk about it, but he did seem, kind of seem like a little bit of a hippie. But uh, so I could see it, especially given that the era that he was in. I feel like if he was, in, it, it, I, I feel like if he was around today, maybe he would have been a little bit differently. I don't know. Maybe he would have just gone further into it. I don't know, but it's hard to tell. All right. Economic analysis of libertarian class theory. Dr. Rothbard has noted the inspiration he gained from John C. Calvin to the state, which we recognize as a monopoly of legitimized coercion divides men into two classes the state's systematic looting of the general public and subsequent distribution of this wealth necessarily distorts the allocation of property which would exist in a free market by a free market libertarians mean one in which all goods and services are voluntarily exchanged an analysis of involuntary exchanges is provided by power and market by dr rothbard this is one of the great things about rothbard he has so much work you always have something you can reference to um, at the very least, the resources consumed by the individuals who make up the state's bureaucracy constitute a net gain by these wielders of power, uh, or they would not engage in the practice, and constitute a net loss to their victims, even if the remains are distributed as e equitably as possible. In practice, far more is consumed by the status and their chosen beneficiaries and is lost by the victims. This is the fundamental division observed by Calhoun and Rothbard. The division of society into an exploiting class of those who make a net gain by the existence of the state and an exploited class of those who incur a net loss by the existence of the state. Yeah. Um, I had a thought, but I forgot it. Uh, I, I guess, you know, this is kind of libertarianism 101, but for those, you know, if you really just think it through, anyone who's working for the state, I mean, with maybe exceptions of like somebody like firefighters or something, for the most part, they're probably, and even actually, you know what, even in the case of firefighters, I'd say, you know, pretty much, if you're working for a state, you're probably economically more of a drain than you are a benefit. Because even yeah. in the case of something beneficial like a, a fireman, if you really apply your you know libertarian analysis, you could be like, well, this probably be run a whole lot more efficiently, and there's probably a whole lot of money being lost here. Like, yeah, so. it depends on how you define the parameters of exploitation. If you define it like from the standpoint of the individual, then like it's going to vary. Like, would you pay for a fire department voluntarily? Ah, uh, yeah. Would it look similar to the, the public system we have now? Maybe. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, now, if you put that to the community, like, would they pay for a fire department voluntarily? Yeah, probably. Mo mo more than more likely than not, yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of communities do, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. You have volunteer fire departments. They're set up, you know, in a pr pretty uh, pretty standard setup across the board. Yeah. Um, in terms of like hierarchy and, you know, how they're, how they're managed, how they're funded. Um, yeah, I guess like g going back to our, our comparison with Marxism, um, you know, like defining uh, what you were just going through, defining, you know, how libertarians uh, see the world. Like uh, when we talk about a free market, we mean like a market that's devoid of, um, you know, force and coercion and all that. Um, just like with Marxism's view on history, 
like the whole the single point of failure in their view of history is exploitation theory, which we as nominal libertarians right now know that, you know, uh, the wage wage labor isn't inherently exploitative. It can very well be voluntary. Some people have different time preferences than others. So that's kind of where Marxism falls apart. But other than that, other than that foundation, like we can look at Marxist theory of history and more or less agree with it. Mm. Um, when they analyze like, you know, the medieval era with feudalism and then go into like, you know, early capitalism with the guilds and all that and the, and the early bourgeoisie. Um, we can more or less agree with it, even if we don't understand some of the vocabulary they use. But um, the thing with that, the thing that kind of got me away from libertarianism was their single point of failure, which is viewing, viewing history through the lens of a, uh, varying degrees of the free market, uh, you arrive. You it's it's inevitable that liberalism, you know, is why we are here today, where we are. Um, you know, it, when you when you have a when, when you have whatever degree of free market you think we have, whether you know it's it's the most unfree free market or it's just fucking wild west and complete, you know, super state anarchy. Um, like it, it's pretty inevitable that these these institutions are going to arise, and these these um, these power dynamics are going to come into play, and uh, politics inevitably arises from economics, and um, so in my view, at least, and uh, you probably disagree, your audience probably disagrees a lot, but um, like where we are today is because of that liberal ideal of a free market. And that to yeah. me, at least to, in my evolution, was what kind of drew me away from libertarianism, that inevitability of like, this is what liberalism has granted us. Yeah, uh, you know, I actually don't necessarily disagree with you. I think maybe our perspective is a little bit different because I actually agree. I think this is kind of addressed earlier in one of the, the readings we did. Uh, I mean, obviously, I forget how the big brain way to, to word it because there is an economics uh, way to frame it. But essentially, the idea is like with the liberalism, the free market, whatever, you know, because mm. I think this is when we were talking about like the original founding. We were kind of talking about 1776. Yeah. The regulatory kind of like, capture yeah. and all that. Yeah. When you when you have this state that exists that puts very little regulations and kind of allows the market to flourish, it's essentially just, you know, I, I don't know. You could you could you could equate it to like something like a, if you had farm animals to where you like let them flourish like you know exceedingly yeah. well. That way, then later you can come in. There's so much more spoils for you to take. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of the same idea. They they allowed them. I mean, not to sound corny, but it's kind of like you, know, you got to break the cycle, or whatever. But this is kind of why I like the me personally why I like agorism in a lot of ways because I know a lot of agorisms agorisms a lot of agorists are a little bit utopian in their thinking and I can kind of see how you would derive that from Konkin's mm -hmm. writing uh, although like I guess I kind of look at it a little bit differently in the way he says it but uh, yeah I, 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 I don't think it's utopian um yeah. I think it's it's a Some are. I think it's a little uh it's a little optimistic about its mm -hmm. ability to scale but other than that I I, I have no problem with agorism yeah. Actually, but I have my, more of a problem with anarcho-capitalism than I have with agorism. Yeah, I mean, my, my point is getting at is more the idea that this is what you can do to make yourself freer, more prosperous. Uh, this mm. is why I like to put a little bit more of a, like a wealth, power, and influence spin on it because I think they're a lot of the same thing, which is a different perspective of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, just kind of improve your own station in life. And obviously, 
reducing the impact the state has in your life is only going to benefit you as long as you do it in a smart way. Uh, you know, you know, obviously don't be an idiot about it. You know, it, it, if you're not working for a corporation or the state, they're going to have less control over you, probably leading you to have, have a more, maybe not necessarily economically in the, in the, in the materialist version of view of it uh, better. But you, I think you probably have a more fulfilled life and that you won't, you know, you don't have to worry about daddy government fucking with you to that extent because they control your paycheck. Um, you know. And just just having just having a space somewhere that you're completely insulated from, um, you know, whether it's the state or woke culture or whatever, um, just having any type of space that you are removed from that influence that that like crushing that cr- crushing eye. Um, that's that's where I see the most utility of agorism is you have this mm-hmm. you know smaller group of autistic people that do nothing all day but think about how can i subvert you know yeah. how can i how can i subvert this institution this you know central bank digital currencies um you know firearms registries like just finding these niche spaces that are completely insulated from you know the the leviathan yeah and i think looking at it as like the idea a lot of people bring up scale and you brought it up the idea of bringing it to scale to like a nation because a lot of people will frame it and like and I think this is kind of just like a little bit, you know, the our modern education and how we think of the, the country as a nation, one consolidated unit. Whereas if I think if you change your thinking a little bit and think maybe this area over here, or maybe this larger, or maybe not even an area, maybe a network, you know, if you if you try to think of along those lines, you can have a yeah. network of more free people. And, you know, hopefully from there it expands outwards, you have a larger network or maybe even a, a semi-consolidated location, you know. Uh, you know, kind of like a free state thing. I'm not saying they're necessarily an agorist thing, but it, you know, it gets it into uh, it gets into, and I, I forget who the author is, but it's basically post-anarchism where you have mm. like certain times and spaces, like throughout history, that existed in in either almost or completely anarchic, you know, anarchic environment, and they didn't. They they it may have only been like a couple days that it lasted but it was it, it was pure agorism or it was pure anarchy yeah. but it's like div- divvied up into like all these different times and spaces like you know for a for a terrible example you could use like chaz um <laughs> you know it just just imagine like if if chaz was like this wonderful fucking free love hippie fat or or woodstock you know like for all intents and purposes there was no state there was no, there, you know, there was no hierarchy, no class, no, uh, no, no, nothing. Like Woodstock was just a time and space where anarchy flourished, mm-hmm. uh, whatever your definition of flourished was. Yeah. Do an, <laughs> do an acid rolling around in the mud, I guess. You know? well, that wasn't real anarchism, Aaron. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Real anarchism. It, hasn't it, it, was, it was fucking real agorism though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, the charge immediately arises that nearly everybody in the modern complex mixed economy makes gain and lace gain gain and losses from the state's actions. Separation and accounting is extraordinarily difficult. Libertarians must agree, but respond that firstly, one can improve the moral character of one own, one's own one's own life by striving to comprehend his sources of wealth, maximizing the non-coercive ones and minimizing the coercive ones. It was kind of what we were just talking about a minute ago. And secondly, that those joying or or suffering an extreme imbalance can be discerned and dealt with. 
Those who are obviously suffering heavy oppression deserve the priority attention from those libertarian humanists concerned with aiding and relieving victims of the state. Those who are obviously gaining overwhelmingly by the state, the ruling class, can be rightly suspected of directing state policy and becoming priority targets of those libertarian activists interested in achieving a just society. I like how he framed that. I really do, because this is where, especially in libertarian theory, people get retarded and like they'll be like, Black, I mean, I'm not saying this is like a, this is just an easy straw man example. Like BlackRock's a private company or something. Or, oh, well, the Rockefellers are just fucking capitalists. And you're like, let's be fucking real. <laughs> like, no, it, it is a useful, it's a useful lens to determine who is a part of the state and who isn't. And where yeah. you go from there is, uh, you know, up to your, your particular yeah. flavor of ideology that you like. Yeah. But um, it, it definitely is a useful tool to determine who is a part of the state and who isn't. Yeah. And, and, and the way he worded here is not to set rigid lines. He even, he even says like you, I mean, me and you, and I'm sure pretty much damn near everyone here. I guarantee, I mean, maybe there's one fucking pure agorist or somebody, but to yeah. some extent, and even then you probably could find some autistic way to derive this from them. They are in some way uh, benefiting in, you know, in their, you know, economically in some oh, regard yeah. from the state. I would say so, like yeah. even a person that was like born in the woods was, is, I mean, they still, yeah. they still indirectly benefit or yeah, they, they still have these indirect actions that shape their life and their experience due to the state. Yeah. I mean, the woods one might be a little bit hard to prove, but I get what you mean. <laughs> How did they get to the woods? <laughs> Who, who, it's a was park, bro. <laughs> who was their grandparents? Who was their... All right. But yeah, no, that's one thing I like. I, I think people hear class theory and they immediately think rigid lines. But the, the, the great thing about the agris class theory is it's not. And th this is why I say a lot of times, uh, you know, I feel like our people are tend to have binary thinking. I think you need to think things more along a spectrum, uh, you know, especially when it comes to, you know, friend enemy type thing. Like, yeah, there are definitely some clear distinctions. But you also, you know, you do need to be able to look in shades of gray as well. I so. think now in the 21st century, it, it's like, do you work for a Fortune 500 company or do you work for, you know, it depends on your industry, depends on your company, depends on a lot, a lot of different things. But it's still, you know, you can still pretty much get, you know, who is benefiting the most and who isn't. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you know, how you, you get how you approach them. Yeah. And a lot of people will say shit like, especially say with a company like Amazon, they'll be like, well, uh, they didn't necessarily ask for this regulation or this or that. And they're like, okay, but they're clearly benefiting from it. Yeah. Like, I mean, they sure. you, it. Yeah. Like you can say, I mean, yeah, I guess it's technically true or, or it could be true that they had nothing to do with it and they're just hapless. Uh, uh, you know, people who benefited from this, but at the end of the day, it's kind of like, all right, you're, you're, you're getting all this wealth from stolen or essentially, you know, coerced uh, fucking income in a sense. So yeah, let's be real. Like maybe enemy not might might not be the right word, but functionally yes. So um, yeah. Uh, all right, historical analysis of libertarian class theory. Here, Dr. Rothbard has drawn heavily upon the studies of the German uh, sociologist Franz Oppenheimer and his American disciple Albert J. Nock, Our Enemy, the State. It's a good book. Uh, Oppenheimer distinguished two means of acquiring wealth, the economic means and the political means. Those correspond to wealth acquired voluntarily by the market and to wealth acquired coercively by power. 
I have been found uh, fond of using the following paradigm to synopsize uh, Oppenheimer's thesis. Peaceful, peaceful farmers and agorists are engaged in production and trade, having judges, perhaps priests, and chiefs who organize defense against predatory tribes and roving bands of thieves. These bands of savages raid such productive communities for their own parasitical gain, taking all removable wealth, including slaves, and consuming fixed wealth through fire, rape, and murder. Even if constantly successful, the leaders of these raiders soon realize that they will eventually run out of sources of wealth. The first step towards civilization is then taken by leaving behind enough wealth and populace to rebuild so they may be raided again. The parasites cease to be fatal to their hosts. And this is kind of what we were getting at earlier with the whole idea of like uh, the, 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 little, the, the less the parasite feeds upon it, the more of a future bounty they have essentially. Um, of course, the threat of an annual raid during harvest, for example, is somewhat discouraging to the incentive of the productive victims. The more enlightened, enlightened barbarians move on to the next step, occupying the agorist communities, institutionalizing and regularizing the plunder and rape. These rulers seek to counter discouragement, resentment, and rebellion by allying or buying out the priests to exalt the ruling class and to convince victims that they are actually benefiting by these presences of these protectors of order. Later in history, this function of creating a mind-numbing mystique is taken up by the court intellectuals as religion wanes. This is straight up out of Anatomy of State, uh, which is why it's probably one of the best uh, you know, little bits if you're trying to get into this, this world. Um, the plunderers can arise internally too. Perhaps the war chiefs and native priests, seeing the examples around them, convince the locals that they too need a strong standing force to defend the community against invasion by for the foreign states. Creating the same mystique, the protectors become the plunderers, and a new state is born. Oppenheimer, okay, oh, something. That's uh, wow. <laughs> they're, uh, yeah. they're going really going step by step. Maybe yeah. skipping a few parts in between, but yeah, he's very concise. I'll give him that. I, that's one thing I like about Conkin's writing. He's very concise. Um, like, yeah, I'm sure you could say he left out some stuff, but that was probably like, uh, I mean, that was what like a couple paragraphs, and he just covered like a shitload right there. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking about like uh, you know uh, the the Assyrians that just you know showed up one day and were like you know where where I you you either surrender to us or we just like brutally rape torture kill you know br fucking you know dismember your king put his head on a pike and you know take take his queen and um granted yes that is that is very coercive but um. You know, once 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 they assimilated all their people over time, you know those those ancestral memories kind of kind of disappear and cultures kind of come and go. The Assyrians ended up leaving, but um, you know, one, I guess once the first like state was was made, um, that was kind of just a logical evolution in 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 human civilization, um, and one that, yeah, I guess it's going to be. <laughs> hard hard to get rid of yeah i mean borderline maybe even impossible in a in a in a grand sense maybe yeah. possibly i don't know who knows what will come like millennia from now maybe you know the free state wins or the free market you know the true free market wins out i'm not necessarily i'm not i'm more agnostic on that i also i just kind of like i guess i just kind of don't care it's yeah. like uh fucking i'm not gonna be around for that so but 
but well, it, goes, it, it goes back to our first episode. Like, uh, do you think people act rationally or emotionally? And I think, like, I think we agree, like at best, you know, it's 50, 50 throughout your day. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it de- depends on the person as well, uh, which I, I do think, I think we, we probably talked knowing me and you, I'm sure we talked about division and why it's a good thing at some point. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that's kind of why I think it's good to kind of create your own, enclaves because i mean in the future i i am like you know thinking very far off the future probably even past our life i do think there will likely be a some sort of situation in which there are large to medium sized to decent sized enclaves of free people like or to, to a decent extent maybe not entirely and then you know there will be spots of incredible authoritarianism but i think they will be more divided uh, so I, I think division is actually a good thing. Uh, you know, like if that is what you want, if you are the person who thinks along those lines, I think you should move that way. If you're someone who likes the state, you know what? You should go move to an urban environment and enjoy everything that that provides. I think that's in, in a blue state. Go do that. I think you should. I 100% think you should. But if Which you think more like us. Of saying like, go kill yourself. <laughs> yeah, basically, you know, like, but if that's what you want, I mean, for real, like, I'm not even kidding. Like, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> like, I mean, I may advise you against it if you were a friend, but fucking Go do it. I mean, if anything, it's good. It gets you out of my way. It's kind Whatever of floats your boat, buddy. Go to the yeah. city and get fucking stabbed. <laughs> yeah. Although I do think there probably will be in their head, uh, like it, it will almost be like a, a little bit of a fake thing. I do think you'll probably see like techno technocratic cities and stuff in the future. So I yeah, do I mean, think that's that's happening now. With yeah, exactly. Smart cities and just the pervasiveness of the security state. Yeah, it's just like te- now technology companies. Yeah. I mean, it's just like now, it's, there's reasons. Like you look at somewhere like New York City, uh, you know, there are so many perks if you're someone trying to do certain things. So there is a draw to it. Like if you're a comic, like, uh, you know, a lot of the LA comics are moving out, I know now, but they're most, a lot of them are moving to like Austin or New York. Uh, and so those are where the comic, comic scenes are. Uh, you know, I'm talking specifically about New York. So if you're someone going after that, there is, there is a draw to that. If you like having... I'll be able to go to walk down the street and be able to go to, I don't know, fucking, uh, if you just like that convenience, there, there is definitely something to that. It will be a more convenient life in a lot of ways, probably for sure. Yeah. So, but I don't necessarily think convenience is a good thing, but if that's what you want and that's what you like, go for it. Uh, so, but anyways, Oppenheimer's theory complements the Calhoun Rothbard analysis perfectly by explaining the origins of the present day States. For a study of actual modern nation states and the operation of their class structures, we turn to the revisionist historians. Revisionist contributions to libertarian class theory. World War I ruptured the liberal and radical intellectual body. Even anarchists divided on the war question. The anti-war group among historians began delving into the records to prove the correctness of their opposition and demonstrate to the idealistic war supporters how they were duped into serving plutocratic war profiteers, political chicanery, and closet imperialism. The widespread disillusionment of the treaty with the Treaty of Versailles aided such revisionists and won general acceptance to their exposures. Charles Beard, Harry L. Elmer Barnes, Sidney Fay, J.W. Payne, and W.L. Langer in the U.S., J.S. Ewert in Canada, Morell, Beasley, Dickinson, and Gooch in England. Fabre Luce, Renovin, and DeMarshall in France, Steve Montagelis, Von Wegerer, and Lutz in Germany, Barbagallo, 
Barbagallo, I guess, Torre and Lombroso in Italy. These historians became quite chic, especially as leaders arose in the defeated powers to revise the terms of the treaty and appeasers in the victorious powers to accommodate them. World War II caused a new split with Beard, Barnes, Charles C. Tansil in the U.S. and F.J. FJP, Veal, and AGP Taylor remaining or becoming revisionists on the Second War, with others going a whoring after the new war to end all wars. This time, the victorious powers managed to impose a historical blackout through the extensive court intellectuals' influence in ever more state-financed universities and historical journals on the revisionists. Oh, is he getting into the six million? Hell yeah. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding for the YouTube censors. That was a joke. Uh, the courageous dissenters were vilified as thinly disguised Nazi simps. You know, maybe he is getting into it. Though many had impeccable liberal and social democratic credentials. Pacific Front Revisionism has had some measure of success, but European Front Revisionism remains a disputable, disreputable activity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, that's starting to fucking gain some traction now. What's that? Oh, uh, just revisionism, World War II revisionism on the European front. Oh yeah, the uh, on the European front. Is there anything specifically you're talking about? Is it, are you talking? You're, are you talking six million? Is that what you're talking about? Or are you talking about other? Talk, uh, just like everything General? before, during, and after World yeah. War II. Like how how why we got involved, how it got started. You know the the process of like going from the Weimar Republic to the mm. to the yeah. Third Reich. You know Thomas Thomas seven seven seven. Uh, you know Paul Fahrenheit. Uh, they all that they, they just destroyed my brain on it. Yeah, yeah. I, I need to at some point go back and because I, I watched probably I don't know seven of those series that he did with Pete uh, seven seven seven, and they were good shit. But at some point, I just like lost track and I couldn't remember where I was. Oh and I was God, like, yeah. fuck. <laughs> I, I can only listen to a guy talk for so long. Where I'm like, all right, my, I like I, I too much data. I need to like fucking shut down for a second. Yeah, no, it, it's it's been really cool. He's doing God's work there, that's for sure. I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe he's wrong in some spots, but it definitely definitely makes you think. It it is oh interesting God. how this is uh how this is working out right now. Some of the revisionist stuff, how it's coming coming to the fore at this moment in time. But it does make sense. Did you see Michael Tracy's tweet? Re I mean, this is uh, I mean, uh, probably not the great thing to talk about tweets on a show like this, but I don't give a shit. You know, who Michael Tracy is. Yeah. Yep. Did you see that shit he put out before uh, recently? I think in the past week where he was like, uh, I don't know exactly what worded it, but essentially he, he was saying something. I remember he's quote tweeted somebody uh, was saying that like the, and essentially what he was saying is uh, he wasn't saying that the U.S.'s uh, involvement in it caused the big H. I'm being careful my words here, mm -hmm. but he was saying that that was the peak of it. And that's when he went full bore. And it was just crazy seeing, and anyone who was Michael Tracy, he's a little bit of like a left of center. So it was kind of like pretty shocking to be like, see him be so fucking base. And it was yeah. like, he was getting dragged. He was actually getting ratioed by a lot of people, but it was kind of like, well, he's right. And like, yeah. he just like kept doubling down and like, it, it was great. He never backed off an inch. I was like, holy shit, this dude's got balls of steel. Like everybody from like uh, Kinzinger to like all these different fucking big names were like fucking like, Oh, you think we fucking cause it? And he's like, no, that's not what I fucking said. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, it, it was about uh, how basically we baited Japan into into going to, you know, declaring war on us doing Pearl Harbor because we embargoed their oil. And then I yeah. saw the comments like, oh, well, you know, there was the, the whole Reaper Nan King thing. What, what, you, you don't care about rape? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Dan Carlin does a really good series on uh, the, the war in the Pacific too. Like everything leading up to it, like yeah. starting off with like their, you know, the, their campaign in China. Mm. All right. Cold war revisionism is some is accepted somewhat less than world war one, but more than world war two inquiry and exposure. Most encouragingly, the new left and de- deviationist Marxism are Marxist historians who are drawn into revisionism Ooh. by their, by their antipathy of the to the Vietnam War, have begun looking backwards to the roots of modern foreign policy. On the left, Weinstein and Gabriel Kolko have integrated revisionist history on foreign policy with domestic ruling class investigation. On the right, the Birchers have grown gradually less hysterical in their conspiracy theory, dropping their international communist devil theory for exposure of the machinations of U.S. plutocrats. John Birch Society is based. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I've never done a deep dive, but it does seem to be as a little bit of a simplistic view. It's just kind of like all these goddamn commies, but it's like kind of right, but it seems like they're missing an element from the little bit there's, of There's a lot of people in the, in like the, you know, right-wing libertarian sphere that were like former John, former Birchers that would surprise you mm-hmm. once you start looking into it. Yeah, I know there's definitely a lot of respect from our circles for them. They're, like the, they're like the Frankfurt School of Libertarian. You're like, wow, I can't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> Him too? <laughs> yeah. The Higher Circles by G. William Domhoff begins the synthesis of the varying strands of revisionism into a single sober thesis, adding the sociological surveys of C. Wright Mill's power elite investigations. Domhoff, a leftist, devotes a section of his book to an earlier rightist conspiracy theorist, Dan Smoot, and finds much of it agreeable. Since then, Smoot has been superseded by Gary Allen's non dare call it conspiracy. Libertarian class theory, application to domestic policy. Beard goes back to the American secession from the British Empire with his economic interpretation of the Constitution. Libertarians tend to begin with the relatively laissez-faire period of the late 19th century in the U.S., explored by Kalko and his magnificent triumph of conservatism. Kalko deviates from orthodox Marxism by claiming that the wicked capitalists did not establish their rule due to inevitable concentration of economic power under capitalism, but rather plotted to gain the state's aid in destroying an all-too-successful competitive semi-free market which threatened the long-term stability of their profits. I feel like Albert J. Nock, I vaguely remember him having a similar type thesis in his his book. Uh, But anyways... Um, Kalko devastatingly points out that the massive regulations of transportation. Oh, I remember it was his idea was a lot of the free market aspects of the original uh, constitution or whatever was more, uh, a lot of tradesmen that were involved and they were trying to, uh, trying to, you know, cement their power in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah. you know, essentially what it was. I, I wish I could remember the details of it, but it's kind of interesting. It has uh, to do a lot with like who bankrolled the, uh, who bankrolled the continental army and all that too. And it's mm-hmm. all goes back to banks and Jews and all that. <laughs> <laughs> Always goes back to that. Yeah. <laughs> Every single time. <laughs> Kalkov devastatingly points out that the massive regulations of transportation and antitrust legislation advocated by the anti-monopolistic progressive movement was actively supported by such powerful businessmen as Andrew Carnegie, Mellon, uh, Morgan, and Rockefeller. In 1905, the National Civics Federation was formed to combat the anarchist tendencies of the laissez-faire-oriented National Association of Manufacturers. 
mostly small businessmen with little vested interest wanting to grow, not Sam Pat. NCF members were urged to support regulations and labor legislation to integrate the labor as aristocracy as junior partners in the emerging new ruling class. Over the years, the higher circles developed the Council on Foreign Relations to influence U.S. state foreign policy uh, and the Committee for Economic Development for U.S. state domestic policy. Yeah, they turned it into neocons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Recently, Ralph Nader has been astonished by the de- discovery that most of the regulatory boards are run by the very industries they were set up to control. Huh, no fucking way. Weird. Uh, it's yeah. almost like a law of some sort. <laughs> <laughs> One can only begun, begin to imagine what the CR, CFRCED crowd is doing with the wage price controls. The CLIC clack is made up of equal representation of big business, big labor, and government. Surprise, surprise. All right. Conquest's second law, I think. Like, yeah. If you're, if you're wondering why a, a bureaucracy is doing what it's doing, just imagine it's controlled by its enemies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the funny thing is, too, is uh, when it comes to shit like that, people will, you know, like rules like that, the people will say, oh, were you saying these people aren't doing it intentionally? It's like, yes and no. I'm sure there are some actors that do stuff like that intentionally, you know, twist things. But a lot of times just kind of how the incentives work out and it just ends up being the obvious move. And whether it was on yeah. purpose or not is kind of beside the point. All right. Libertarian class theory application to foreign policy. The financing of World War I has some incredible anecdotes associated with it. For example, there were the Warburg brothers, one financing the German war effort, the other the Allied effort. There were bauxite mines in France which provided aluminum for German warplanes and the activities of the merchants of death munition manufacturers selling to all sides would be comic if the millions of deaths could be dis- dissociated. Modern revisionist theory begins with the attempts of the Bank of England to restore the pound's value. The massive inflation of the war made it impossible to restore it to its pre-war value in gold. And exacting reparations for Germany uh, led to a hyperinflation and crack-up boom, smashing the German economy. The bank's Ashley Montagu met with American financiers in Georgia for the purpose of depreciating U.S. currency to improve the relative standing of the pound. Already, the British were clubbing their vast they're East, not vast, East, European satellites and into following their economic policy. The Federal Reserve Board's inflation of the rolling 20s uh, led to the crash depression and Roosevelt's fascist NRA and IRS jackbooters raiding homes to seize the recently outlawed metal gold, which is still one of those things that is mind-blowing to think at one point. They literally went around and rounded up gold. But, you know, uh, like, can you imagine in modern day if – they went from, I mean, I don't know exactly. I never really done a deep dive into looking at how they logistically went about doing it. I don't know if it was just like a neighbor's writing out neighbor's type thing, but that it always blew my mind. Like I can't imagine like, cause they always talk about take our guns. Can you imagine if they came to everyone's house and I don't know, try to take another cash they had on hand. I, I don't I know. Say they targeted mostly like warehousing, like okay. any type of warehousing service or gold. I don't know if they went like door to door, like taking people's jewelry. Yeah. But, um, you know, people that that had enough bulk to to like store somewhere, like I, I, I think I remember hearing like that's that's mainly what they they went after. You know what? They're going after just a, a quick score and not like a not like a war of attrition type deal. 
You know what? I say do it again. They'll just raise the value of everyone who has gold. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and whenever it settles down, they'll be like, guess what I have? <laughs> uh, just kidding. I don't have enough gold on me to make that really profitable. Don't do it yet, guys. Wait, give me some time. Um, and of course, the European fascist uh, autarchies rip loose from the world's brutocrats' control, engage in barter competition with their own interests in mind, and brought on the Second World War in retaliation. This time, the American military-industrial complex was not dismantled. A new international threat to peace was needed, and less than two years after the end of the Second War to end all wars, Churchill announced that an iron curtain has fallen across Europe. Considerable investigation of plutocratic beneficiaries of the Vietnam War is underway, much less so of those benefiting from the Middle East conflict. Some libertarians have already begun to project the interests of the exploiting class power elite to predict the next war. All right. Yeah, that was a lot. That's a lot of fucking shit there. And I'll be honest, I'm not great on history. So, so, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's about right. Uh, I mean, it's a lot of the, a lot of the money stuff. I mean, it is, it is really key to like start understanding like the money uh, interest because that really does you see the, the 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 hands pulling the strings behind the curtain especially right? when you're talking about like why particularly the usa you know did what it did in both world wars mm -hmm. uh, it was it was all about you know the losses that the banks would take you know if britain were to fall or yeah. if britain were to lose and not recoup you know not not have somebody to extract and recoup from yeah, I think one of the best examples of this, and I think it's one of the easiest to understand is, um, you know, and also it kind of, I guess, you know, I mean, a lot of people understand it from our group. And if you haven't read it, you should. Uh, no Treason, Spooner kind of lays out the same kind of uh, reasoning of that for the Civil War in that. And mm. the idea that like, yeah, maybe some aspects it was about slavery, but like look at the moneyed interests and how they stood to gain. Like, yeah. and he kind of, it always goes back to them. And they're, they're, that was the reason. They granted... He was like, well, they granted you, uh, you know, they, they made you not slaves to make you their slaves so they could make more money type yeah. deal. So, yeah. Went from slave to sharecropper, which. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which. Yeah. All right. Alternative interpretations. A. Marx. While Marxist historical economic determinism draws many scholars in that camp. To similar conclusions as those of libertarians, it contains several fatal flaws. Over and above the obvious one of economic misunderstanding, the necessity for rigid adherence to a class struggle interpretation based on wealth possession rather than the, on the means of its acquisition and inevitable. That's, that's what we were talking about earlier. Yep. Honey, yep. yep. <laughs> you're the enemy, the end. Uh, which, you know, I, I think even then some of our kind kind of fall into that. They just see rich people as being like, oh, those are the bad guys. It's like you got to be a little bit more, uh, a, little, a little smarter than that. I mean, where did their money come from? And also, even then, because like well, you look at characters like Elon Musk, like is he yeah. necessarily an enemy? Is he not? Like he does get a lot of money from the state. I mean, it I is think, really. I think it's kind of moved from prioritizing where it came from to what are they doing with it, and yeah, it's not even so much money anymore. Money is kind of secondary. It's more about influence now. Um, you know what what you do with your Twitter following. Uh, what what activism you participate in um, is that, you know, civilization building or civilization destroying? And, what would you say? Is saying the N word, which, which one does that fall under? <laughs> we're, we're, 
we're, we're building you up. <laughs> I think you have to destroy to build, and you have to build to destroy. So you know, yeah. it's it's a little bit of a quandary there. Um, you know, you, you shake off the ones who aren't comfortable with the hard shit, and you bring in the homies. Um, <laughs> I'm all yeah, for if it. You can't, if you can't take over an institution, then destroy it. Yes. <laughs> or discredit it or whatever. If you can't handle the uh, the occasional N-word, I don't know if I want to be friends. So That's that's kind of my outlook on, on Twitter, at least. Like, Twitter's a fucking... Everybody says Twitter's a cesspool. Well, it's not nearly a cesspool enough because it's still it still influences policy and still influences culture. So we need to make it more of a cesspool to take that power away and diffuse it somewhere else that we like. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I would say, like, something like Twitter isn't for anyone. I, I actually like... But I perfectly, I personally love it. I wish it would go back to the old school rules to where you could just go oh, fucking haywire. I, I, I miss those days because yeah. I fucking, I'm like a pig and shit in that. I love it. But the know, only like, way to go back to how the the old internet was was to find find a platform in its infancy and wait till it gets destroyed, just like Twitter did. Yeah. All right. The necessity for rigid adherence to a class struggle interpretation. Based on wealth possession rather than on the means of its acquisition, acquisition into an inevitable coming of a proletariat revolution led by organized labor forces, the Marxist, to judge and rationalize his conclusions to fit at all costs. Perhaps just as devastatingly, Marxism is now a religion, in quotes, justifying the existence of dozens of the states in the world, and Marxists are now playing court intellectuals and suppressing revisionists in their midst. Uh, was Marxist necessarily uh, full-on communist in the sense of like kind of like the idea of that uh, it was going to be like a utopian communist thing in the end type deal? Because I know there's different ways to interpret it. I forget. For Marx? Um, uh, or was that just different interpretations of Marx? I guess uh, – no. Be, for Marx, the, the ultimate end goal was a classless, stateless society where – you know, a lot of conflict, like there, there just wouldn't be a whole lot of reason for conflict, but you would still have, I think he's still allowed for, you know, definitely allowed for like reaction to take hold. And, um, you know, the, the old capitalist class having these enclaves that cause trouble. Um, so, you know, not, not necessarily a perfect world, but not for the reasons that we would, you know, think yeah. of. Okay, cool. That was kind of what I was getting at. I guess kind of a yes, but kind of a no, because I've actually read some of the old school like uh, uh, anarcho-socialist slash anarcho-communist uh, writers, and they it, it is kind of interesting to see how they describe it, because it is it does drive it to one extreme or the other, to where either to get communism, you need a an all-powerful state that we all somehow control, although you kind of don't really... Uh, and then, uh, or the flip side, everyone is free to the greatest degree, and that kind of creates its own a classless society in a sense, yeah. you know, theoretically. It's um, the old, it's, it's the ancient, uh, like perennial argument of using the state as a tool versus, you know, smashing the state and destroying power. Yeah. And, and I guess we kind of have a similar uh, conundrum with, I guess, uh, the, the, I guess you could say the right side of the, uh, of the, the, whatever the fuck the political compass, you know, we have a similar, yeah. you know, thing. It's like a, either you go full top right or full bottom right is really, you know, those are the, those are the only really uh, logical conclusions if you really think about it. Uh, yeah. This is what this is why I like people in the polls. I think appealing to the center is kind of a stupid, in my opinion, honestly, because who fucking cares what they think? They'll just follow anyone. Uh, yeah. Really, it's the people in the polls that actually have convictions and 
strive to be, you know, somewhat consistent in some regard or the people you can usually to articulate to. them pretty well. And yeah. 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 I mean, I think with the exception of like anarcho-communism, even the most well-spoken, eloquent anarcho-communists, like it, it's usually within the first three sentences that you find something completely, you know, ahistorical or just crazy. Yeah, but they're trying. I'll give them the credit. Whereas the centrists just kind of like yeah, don't, yeah. kind of don't care. I guess. Stop fighting. Yeah. <laughs> Stop fighting. I want to buy my iPhone. <laughs> Let's just find middle ground here. Like, oh, yeah. shut the fuck up. Materialism. Yeah, but that was the point I was getting at because he kind of brought up in here was kind of the. It was kind of that Marxism has just become a religion to justify a bunch of states, although that was kind of not really what it was going for, but sort of. I don't know it gets really murky when you start dealing in like a communist socialist. It's socialist. all the people after Marx that really built on, you know, his shortcomings and his mm-hmm. inability to, you know, inability to see the future, really. Yeah. But, um, yeah, like e- even modern day Marxists, um, the reason why they are the way they are is because there really is no there, there is no rigid classes, just like, just like Konkin was saying, there's no rigid class structure anymore. You're, you know, the, the, the proletariats are kind of like the, you know, the, the illegal, the illegal immigrants and like the, uh, you know, the, the wage workers fresh out of high school or super elderly. And it's, it's just really hard to define classes now. Yeah. Uh, that's true. Sense. Yeah. And even in a libertarian sense as well, which is, you know, I think t- to the benefit of Konkin here, that's why he's like, it's not rigid. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's kind of a, I think it was kind of a little bit of a downfall in a, in a previous way. A lot of uh, ANCAPs used to interpret this. Uh, although, you know, in modern day, uh, you know, the public and the private is so intermixed. You need to be, you know, think about it a little bit more. All right. That's, that, that's probably, uh, like that, that's the that's the same danger that uh, libertarianism, like if, if libertarians were to adopt this class theory, they would face the same, the same danger that Marxists did back, you know, after world war two, where, you know, the class is kind of blended. So now you need a different basis of class, which became, you know, post-colonialism and uh, critical race theory and all that. And that those were all just dovetailed off of Orthodox Marxism. Yeah. Uh, yeah, which like, uh, yeah, obviously we, we've said multiple times if he, he did it rigidly, although, you know, to be fair, I think what happens a lot of times with these, a lot of these people's writings, people will latch onto them, but not really actually read them or comprehend it correctly, or just hear somebody else talk about it. Like, well, that's cool. So, you know, there's probably agorists out there who, who think of agorist class theory. And that's why I feel like there are a lot of cunty agorists. There just are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the, the people that'll look at the mailman and be like, I, I, I want to fucking stab him. Like he's yeah. the enemy. <laughs> exactly. F- like, fighting uh, the mailman in the street. Like, like okay, man. <laughs> but did you actually or, read this? Because I don't or, think you did. Or the direct opposite, the equal and opposite amount of stupidity is looking at somebody like Elon Musk and being like private company, bro. He's our hero. He's the yeah. next great man. <laughs> exactly. All right. B, consensus. The consensus school, the dominant group of court historians in the West, denied the existence of any classes. While there may have been wicked exploiters in the past, they were routed and brought to justice by the progressive era, era the New Deal, the Fair Deal, the New Frontier, and the Great Society, and whatever is to come. We are left to assume that all these plutocrats are receiving windfalls by the failure of previous reformers to spot all the loopholes and economic imperfections in the free market. And if the plutocrats who gain the most from state intervention 
supported Roosevelt, Wilson, Roosevelt, Truman, Kennedy, Johnson, and whoever succeeds Nixon must be a lot of accidents, coincidence, and the inability of these people to perceive their own interests, but lucking out anyway. So I guess we were kind of just talking about centrists. I guess this consensus school is basically the centrist. We're just like, they don't really look in any terms of class. I know we said not rigid class. Uh, I think rigid looking at classes rigidly is a little bit silly, as I've said, but saying there's no classes at all, I think it's also just as fucking retarded. So, yeah. Uh, no, C, Rand. No one would accuse Ayn Rand of being a competent historian or a leader of a school of historiography. Uh, I like that little jab. It is funny how Konkin, if you read his writings, he does take weird little funny jabs, but it's also like, it's always like kind of clever and like slight. It, it's yeah. just funny the way he does it. It's like gracefully cunty. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, she does convey an implicit interpretation of history, which lingers in many of those deserving objectivism or deserting objectivism for libertarianism. In her view, similar to the consensus school, but inverted in moral judgment, peaceful, productive capitalists were engaged in making everyone well off in the 19th century when along came these progressive collectivists drunk on statism and high on altruism to ravish their profits and lay their clammy hands on their activities. Having absorbed too much altruist collectivism themselves, the capitalists gave up the intellectual battle for their freedom and tried to pragmatically accommodate themselves to the new system, leading them to some supporting pragmatist thugs like Nixon's plumbers. I guess that goes to our previous point we were talking about with uh, how you know a lot of our kinds kind of are have this like idea of like, oh, capitalists and looking in like the big C or the way that... Uh, you know, like just making money, like that's great. Like a oh, fuck, whatever. Like kind of like the you know, kind of the idea of the Elon Musk. Like in an Iranian yeah. world, the the Elon Musk or the Jeff Bezos would be the great men or, or whatever. Yeah. And it's kind of like, all right, like yeah, they did a lot. I and mean, like I guess in a certain sense, you can say they were great men. But like, let's be real, they're not really. I mean, like maybe Elon, you could make a case. It's kind of up in the air. But somebody like a Bezos or something. Like let's be real, like. <laughs> And again, it depends on the lens that you're you're viewing them from in terms of like good or bad. I mean, a corporation or a company in general's job, a, a private entity's job is to make money. Um, you know how they go about doing that um, is can, can be good or bad, but um, you know the it doesn't change the fact that like every private firm's job is simply just to make money. Like that's that's it. Yeah, which I mean, that is true. And I guess I kind of can't hold against them. But just the idea that like, I don't know, the the the, the way the Randians uh, seem to seem the lens they seem to view the world is just kind of like they, they are very much like kind of the binary and caps of the past that were very much just like, you know, uh, big, big corporations, good fucking, you know, state bad. You know, like, okay, like, <laughs> yeah, severe, that lacks a lot. <laughs> They're, like corporations are just vessels for yeah. You know the state and for the consumer and uh you know and, and i guess in purely economic terms the 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 overall class battle that Konkin alludes to is you know the, the consumer the producer and the state you know the yeah. relationship between the three yeah all right while i certainly would not disagree with the need to straighten out a lot of businessmen philosophically and ethically rand's ignoring and slash or ignorance of the powerful with vested interest in the state leaves the objectivist with the tactics of parlor parlor debates and pamphleteering as his only defense against the guns and prisons of the status. 
What frustration the objectivists must feel hearing that Richard Nixon has read Atlas Shrugged and still not has not seen the light. If only David Rockefeller would just listen to him for a minute. Because it's like, yeah, I mean, you read there, are, you always hear about these fucking like big wigs who have read Atlas Shrugged or something. It's like the idea that they would just like turn over, like, no, if anything, they would just justify their own existence in their head. That, like, you know, yeah. I'm the great man. Like, look at me. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember back in the day, everybody was freaking out that like Paul Ryan yeah. was, was like a, a fan of Ayn Rand and, you know, lefties would be like, oh, he's, he's fucking like, the the, the the reincarnation of Ayn Rand and he's going to like, you know, lead lead this country into like exploitative hell. And then like all the Republicans were like, he's our guy. He's a free market guy. And then, you know, the, his entire tenure was just being a neocon. Yeah. All right. Value of libertarian class theory. All right. We're nearing the end here, guys. It's, uh, it's like half a page. Several good reasons have already been suggested in this article for the study and application of libertarian class theory. Understanding the nature of the enemy never hurts in dealing with him. Turning over the rank of vested interests over an, on an issue to expose the plutocratic worms crawling out from under uh, may turn public pressure on to force the power elite to accommodate the dissent and give up untenable activities. Convincing new leftists and birchers that you are indeed aware of the problem and you can explain the ruling class conspiracy even better should aid in recruiting. Fingering the court intellectuals as tools of the interest they were supposed to forsake and their supposed search for truth and enlightenment could shake up a few acad academies and compromise the credibility of these modern witch doctors purveying their sophisticated voodoo. Murray Rothbard urges the libertarian activists to burn with a passion for justice. If this is our quest, then libertarian class theory is indispensable to the discovery of those who have visited statism upon us and whose blood-drenched hands are pocketing the booty. Old-fashioned justice is needed for a new liberty. That was a pretty base sentence ended on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, and that's that. Um, all right. I don't know if you have any finishing thoughts. Uh, um, I guess, you know, when we're talking about, um, you know, just the entire basis of viewing viewing class relations through the lens of the nap you have to it's i i, I think it's incomplete <laughs> this is this is where we start getting into like you know the more the more right wing territory um i think it's an incomplete analysis to say that uh you know using initiating force in and of itself is bad you have to look at who is initiating the force and who, who is, you know, taking the force. Uh, it's, 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 if, if it's the ruling class and initiating force on like us, then like that, obviously there's some winners and losers there that we'd have preferences about, but if it's yeah. us initiating force on the ruling class or initiating force on, because uh, we're talking about class there, we have to think in terms of groups and subgroups and classes and um, like where agorism falls into that, uh, how, you know, obviously it tries to askew force, but, um, that, and this is kind of why I not dropped out of agorism, but, um, I just, I don't think of it that much other than, you know, when I'm happen to find the time to engage in it, but, um, this is why I don't think it's kind of a, a universally applicable strategy to bring about, you know, paradigm shifting change. I, I would push back a little bit. I don't think it is, it's used force. 
Uh, I, I think he more uh, he would only advocate force in a pragmatic situation because I mean the, the yeah. big thing in the phases like you know because he goes into and this is where a lot of people get the utopian thinking of agorism where he goes into the phases and he's kind of theorizing how potentially if people took this path and if it grew how mm. it could work out in the future and his idea there is a phase where the counter economy has grown to such a degree to That's where true. they have the infrastructure to protect themselves and not have to mm -hmm. worry about it and then it's just like all right game time bitch. And even then, to, to your point, like I, I get what you're saying, the uh, uh, the idea of who initiates it. I, uh, the, my, the thing I would push back on is like, I don't necessarily think it would technically be initiating if mm -hmm. we did it because they theoretically are constantly fucking, uh, you know, uh, aggressing against us. So yeah. anything we did in, I mean, uh, barring, because uh, a lot of people make the example, you know, uh, to bring up like okay, seizures. Uh, There's someone I got an argument once about like, hey, at least Timothy McVeigh did something. It's like okay, but yeah, he. You do not see how he set back the movement incredibly, and then even then, on top of that, he killed innocents. Yep. So like, like no, like that was an awful idea. It didn't work out. If that's your thinking, it was fucking retarded. Like on every level. Yeah. Like even yeah. if there was no innocence whatsoever, and it was a, a fucking building full of fucking fed boys. I mean, I may be like, all right, that's pretty dope. But I'd be like, all right, that's pretty retarded and is not going to work out well. Like, it's probably yeah. going to set the whole movement back a bunch. Yeah, that, <laughs> all that does is create, like, this tiny, you know, sp space of time where, you know, the people that agree with them are like, fuck, yeah, that was awesome. And then the people that, that – the vast, the vast amount of people that disagree with them are like, all right, we need to crack down on anybody that agrees with them. Yeah, which so then that's kind of like the point is again with Konkin, like he he does definitely take the position it seems to be they're like you kind of can't really aggress or or, or um, you know uh, initiate force against the state because it would be retaliatory force in basically any instance uh, you know depending on how you did it I guess you know as long as no instance or whatever you know but yeah so I mean he's not against it it's just a pragmatic thing of the idea of that like. You know, I, I don't think, you know, this is one thing I push back about the boob boys a lot is like, what, what the fuck are you going to do? Like, like yeah. you're going you're gonna to start a revolution and, and what? Your revolution is probably going to either, it's likely going to get squashed, but even if it doesn't, it's going to get fucking co-opted and it's just yeah. going to be fucking some other shit well, show just, by the end of it. Like <laughs> one, one group of liberals fighting against another group of liberals yeah. to make a better version of liberalism. So. Exactly. So it's like, yeah, this isn't going to work out. Yeah. Uh, so it is, it's, I guess in a sense, it's more of a long game, but you know, theoretically, if you, you, we ever did get to a large enough one, or if you had, say you had, let's say fucking New Hampshire went full on fucking, uh, you know, ANCAP or, or even some section, some County or some shit, like you could probably have a, an, an area that was, uh, got to the point to where it was, uh, had enough of infrastructure, enough of people that. And I'm not saying they would be the ones who aggress, but they would have the defensive force to be repel against anything. As long as oh yeah, as far as like actual kinetic force goes, absolutely. But yeah. you know, we, I think, in, at least in terms of like the the domestic situation in America, um, you know, you don't really need kinetic force anymore when you mm -hmm. have information warfare. And um, yeah. no, that's that's kind of the battleground that we're at right now. And um, agorism is done definitely made some strides in that in that z space um as far as you know cri crypto and um made huge strides yeah yeah and um uh what is it what, what's the word i'm thinking of like securing your phone Rico, uh vpns no uh um 
shit, I'm brain farting it, but basically like, oh, encryption. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I couldn't think of that. Nerd but, shit uh, in general, I got you. Yeah, encryption <laughs> and, um, you know, just all, all these technological advances that gradually make their way through culture. And um, I just, I, I don't know, I, 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 I hate to be a pessimist, but it seems like all of those innovations have gotten co-opted to the point where only a very small amount of people will be there for when it fully matures and you know when this system does you know grind to a halt or become stagnant that uh yeah maybe the agorist will become the new ruling class when bitcoin shoots to the moon or yeah yeah i I, yeah to be clear i actually don't think that like i I do try to frame my thinking of how the future could possibly work even if more people and you know went this route I do think it would be more like the idea of that we kind of have our own spaces type deal. Yeah, and I shouldn't yeah. say agorists will be the ruling class. It'll be the it, it'll be the people that took advantage or that got in early early adopters of whatever agorist um, innovation uh, will be at at an advantage and will you know m- maybe they don't maybe they don't abide by the nap but mm-hmm. they will be the new elites. Yeah. Well, all right. I think we've 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 covered it pretty well. We're nearing the end. Uh, I know you probably need to get to bed. So, uh, you know, uh, with that, if you want to go ahead and drop your plugs, I appreciate you, you doing the series. This is the last one. I appreciate anyone who, uh, who, you know, came, came for these, uh, please share yeah. them around. I think they're cool. Yeah. Um, thank you very much for having me. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's good to kind of get back to get back into, you know, something that I haven't really thought about for a while, but still it, it's, it, you know, it get, get, gets my, uh, brain juices flowing in terms of like, you know, interpreting what's going on today. Yeah, it is, it is fun because it kind of puts you in game theory because the algorithm yeah. is very much about praxis. So it, is, it gets you thinking in interesting ways, I think. So, but yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, but but uh, you can find me at uh, BTWA Returns on Twitter and uh, every Wednesday on uh, Timeline Earth, without exception. I'm there every episode, never missed one. Never. All right. Uh, with that, uh, uh, this is the No Way Jose show. I'm Jose Galison. Uh, you can find my show on YouTube, all the major auto podcasters, Odyssey as well. Uh, if you want to follow me on social media, it's, uh, it's Twitter is at Senor Jose 2020. If you want to follow me on Facebook, I get nuked on Twitter a lot. It's Jose Galison on there. Uh, yeah, I think that's all I got. All right, if you guys, uh, on the off chance you're watching this episode but haven't seen the other one, I had Dave on recently. That was a fun one. We kind of got into a little bit of an argument, so that was fun. Uh, but uh, yeah, you guys might enjoy that. Uh, with that, we are out. Like, share, subscribe, all that gay shit. With that, we are out.